Refuge Minute. In Wallkill River National Wildlife Refuge in northern New Jersey, that hammering sound could only be one thing, the pileated woodpecker in search of a meal. One of the most recognizable birds in all of nature, the pileated woodpecker's large size and red crest served as inspiration for one of America's most beloved cartoon characters, Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> the holes pileated woodpeckers create are often big enough to become nesting areas for smaller birds. A forest full of pileated woodpeckers looking for lunch would sound like a drum line at a parade, and maintaining healthy forests in the wildlife refuge helps the beat go on. Every wildlife refuge is full of unique and unforgettable experiences. With over 500 refuges, you don't have to go far to make a special connection with nature. Learn more at fws.gov slash refuges. That's fws.gov slash refuges. The following program was paid for by Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialists. The views and opinions expressed on Answers Live are not necessarily those of the staff and management of this station. Management has not investigated the claims made during this program. Welcome to Answers Live, your community medical connection, making a partnership of good health. The studio lines are open for your calls and questions. Call 973-267-9687. Now, here's your host, Tom Wood. Good morning and welcome to Answers Live, your community medical connection, creating a partnership of good health. I'm your host, Tom Wood. Answers Live is an interactive talk show, so I'm going to request you guys call in to ask my guest questions. The call-in number again is 973-267-9687. Again, that's 973-267-WMTR. Answers Live is brought to you every Sunday at 9.30 by Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialists, the largest subspecialized neurosurgery group in New Jersey, with our main location at 310 Madison Avenue in Morristown, New Jersey. You can reach us at 973-285-7800. We also have seven other offices throughout New Jersey. Our newest one opened in Somerset County in Bedminster, New Jersey. Visit us on our website at www.ansdocs.com www.ansdocs.com to find out more information about our offices, our locations, and our physicians. Okay, today I'm very excited about our special guest is Dr. Mark Milano. He will be discussing the emergency room. Dr. Milano is the director at Somerset Medical Center. Good morning, Dr. Milano. Good morning, Tom. Uh, before we start, can you just uh, let our listeners know a little bit about you, your background, and um, where you work, Emergency Medical Associates? Sure. I'm a practicing emergency physician in northern New Jersey, part of a group called Emergency Medical Associates based in Parsippany. We staff 25 or so hospitals throughout the New York, New Jersey area and other states on the East Coast. And we provide emergency medical staffing to hospitals and urgent care centers with board-certified or board-prepared emergency physicians. Great. I'm born and raised in New Jersey, and I practice currently at Somerset Medical Center. Wonderful. So your group does cover most of the state. I've actually uh, run across a few of them, unfortunately, in some ER visits. An awesome, awesome group. Okay, we're going to start with a few questions about emergency rooms. I kind of thought about what I should discuss with you, um, which would be most common questions that people might have. So the one to get us started is, what kind of problems do you see in the ER? What are those main uh, routine visits or not so routine that you see mostly at the ER? That's a great question, Tom. Actually, it's really hard to say what the main cause of a visit to the emergency department is because they are so varied. In fact, we see everything from minor abrasions, cuts and scrapes, twisted ankles, all the way up to heart attacks or strokes. So on any given day, on any given shift, it's sort of like you just don't know what's going to come through the doors. 
What we do see primarily, though, the things we're most interested in are emergent conditions, namely things like chest pain, abdominal pain, severe headaches, trauma, injuries, and such, things that really do require the attention of a specialized physician in an emergent fashion. Okay. Um, so is it a little bit like the TV shows? Because most of us have to relate to the ER from an emergency room is from the TV shows. Is it like that a little bit? Probably not, okay. um, because I typically, when I watch those shows, I'm very astounded at the fact that every patient is critically ill or every patient has a rare exotic disease. We do run across situations like that quite frequently. However, most of the time it is the more common conditions that we see, the more sort of routine things and not so glamorous. Right. I, that's probably for sure with um, Hollywood. Okay. When should someone call 911? Of course, everyone, like I said, we go to the ER for many different things, but there's always a question in my mind, especially that I have teenagers now, is, uh, is when you have a problem, when is it appropriate to call 911? And when is it appropriate maybe to go to the ER? That is a fantastic question also. First and foremost, I like to say people should listen to the little voice inside. If something tells you that this is an emergency, that this can't wait any longer, I think that's probably the best indication I can recommend to the layperson for calling 911 because I don't think anybody really has the ability to judge that other than listening to the gut instinct. Um, generally speaking, though, the things that worry me most, trouble breathing, fainting, chest pain, things like that would be a reason for me to call 911. Or, and, and I've done so, in fact, for my own family members when I realized that the transport time and the immediacy of the care would best be served by being brought to the hospital in an ambulance. So although it's hard to say and there's no specific reason, certainly if someone is unable to move or walk, that would be a reason you might need help getting them to the hospital. So things that really kind of ring off that little bell inside your mind that, oh my, I think this is a serious emergency. I think you have every right to call 911. And I encourage rather than dissuade people from doing that. Okay. Um, something that triggered a thought that wasn't even my line of questioning is is um, talking about emergencies. And, and a lot of our listener base um, is over the age of 50. Um, with those medic alert things you see on TV so much where the elderly wear those tags, is that you think that's something very important? I know I had that for my dad, and it really gave me a peace of mind. And I guess what you're saying, 911, I don't know, just triggered a question. I think that's something good. Do you agree with something like that? A vital piece in the chain of survival. Okay. Absolutely. Just for example, if an elderly person or even a not so elderly person is having a stroke and unable to speak, um, you know, a sudden onset of uh, stroke symptoms can involve the inability to form words. In fact, the only way they may be able to get help is if they have a silent way of signaling for care. So I'm a great advocate of a medical alert bracelets or pendants or whatever device you may have in order to be able to become attended to if need be. Okay. And the medical alert uh, bracelets, again, triggered another question. Those are very important. Do you look for those when people come in the ER? Should everyone who has a condition that requires that, is that very helpful? Do you look for that right away on people? Positively. Okay. That's very good to know. Okay. Again, a question. We, we got a little bit about the 911. Is there a difference between an ER and these urgent care centers? Because I see them popping up more and more. Um, I have utilized them in, in certain cases. What is the difference? Is it something that people should get into practice? And when should you know when to go to the actual ER or when should you go to one of these urgent care centers? Well, once again, I think it has a lot to do. Again, you know, if we're talking to and about laypersons here, which I believe that we are, right. Um, I think, again, it's really just based on your perception of the problem. You don't really have much more to go on. So, in fact, urgent care centers have really cropped up everywhere, as you noted, and they serve an excellent purpose, sort of decompressing emergency departments, serving off-hours duties when doctor's offices are unavailable, 
And I sort of consider the urgent care center a middle ground between the standard doctor visit and an emergency visit. They can take care of a lot of emergent conditions or conditions which might require specialized care from a physician who is adept in caring for relatively emergent things. Or a sore throat, maybe a sprained ankle, you know, things that are minor. If you perceive that the care is going to be more complicated, if you certainly have passed out or you have, again, right. severe trouble breathing, right. high fever, or a tremendous worst headache of your life, I don't know that an urgent care center is the proper setting because you may need more testing or treatment than a center like that is set up to handle. But for those sort of routine off-hours things in particular, I think if I had to put my finger on the kind of things that really make an urgent care so valuable to us is the off hours, the evenings, the weekends, when the doctor's office isn't open and you may be very, very worried about going to the emergency department because of intimidation or because, in fact, you fear you fear, you fear may have a long wait there. Right, right. Um, that was a question I was going to ask you in a little bit, but actually let's jump right to that since you brought it up. Um, you're right. A lot of times when something goes on, I always say, oh, I'm going to go to the ER. I'm going to spend at least two to three hours in that ER, and it's not really that big of a deal. Maybe I'll try to handle it at home. What causes those wait times? Now, I am medical, so in a sense I kind of know, but I don't think most people realize why do you have to wait so long in an ER sometimes? Another great question. I you know, find myself asking that question <laughs> in motor vehicle services or sometimes at the shops, shopping, you know, food shopping. We don't see what's happening behind, behind the scenes, though, in those environments, unfortunately. And one of the greatest problems, one of the greatest challenges that we currently have in medicine is the saturation of the system, for lack of a better word. And what I mean by that is we need to have space in order to bring patients into our department. That means we need to free up emergency department beds. If patients who are admitted to the hospital, who've come in at some point, they're awaiting a bed upstairs, quote unquote, in the hospital, and there is no bed available, that doesn't leave any space for us to bring new patients in. So often one of the problems that cause these delays is the inavailability of inpatient bedding. We worked on that. We were trying to put in programs in place in various hospitals to alleviate that problem by allowing patients to be placed in hallways upstairs um, to really just try to get patients out of the emergency department so that we can move new patients in. The other thing I think that poor, you know, worried patient sitting in the waiting room wondering, did they forget about me? When am I going to get inside? A lot of times don't see that there is another major mode of entry into the emergency department, and that is through the ambulance door. So a lot of the volume that we see, particularly at my hospitals, comes from ambulance traffic. And of course, they need to be prioritized. You can't have ambulances circling the hospital for hours at a time waiting to be brought into the emergency department. So we have to prioritize and triage the care Of course, we make no excuses for long delays. We all hate that. No one benefits from it. And of course, there are delays with laboratory testing. There are delays with x-rays. All of those other systems are interdependent. And unfortunately, any one of them that may not be operating at maximal efficacy can slow the whole process down. So we are aware of it. We've not forgotten about you, and we will get to you as soon as we can. We want to make sure you get the care that you need. Okay, great. And just to make it clear, it's not just at your hospital. It's at every hospital. It's certainly a pervasive um, issue. Experience, yeah, I see it all over. I do cover a lot of the different hospitals. Um, talking about large volume visits and, and waiting, um, how do you, I'll say you because you cover so many hospitals, your group cover the uh, recent outbreaks of the flu and the GI flu that we just went through? I guess, we're, are we still in that season, actually? I think we're it's... Fortunately, getting out of that season, okay. um, I think the real spike came a little bit later, but much more intensely this year. 
for primarily influenza and even the stomach virus season. That being said, we wash our hands. And I would like to make that recommendation to everyone listening is that hand washing and good hygiene is the best way to prevent infection in you and your family members, coworkers, etc. What we do in our practice in order to handle these events is prepare ourselves by trying to be healthy, trying to be able to, you know, fend off infection ourselves first and foremost. I mean, you know, as a physician, I try very hard to avoid becoming sick because I know patients are depending on me. We will put on additional staffing if need be when there is a large volume surge secondary to one of these outbreak type illnesses if necessary. And the hospital takes great pains in preventing the spread of infection. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you walk into my emergency department at Somerset Medical Center right now, you'll see that there's a large sign with a box of respiratory masks. If you have fever and cough, please place one of these masks on as soon as you enter the building. Ways of containing the outbreak. But yes, we have lots of different ways that we try to treat and triage these kinds of problems. And if we can get you in and out of the hospital faster to limit your exposure to other patients, we try very hard to do that. Okay. Um, Yeah, I've seen those masks. I was always wondering, do people actually use them? I I know a lot of people probably think, oh, if I put it on, people think I'm sick, but you are sick. And that's the, the strangest thing. We've learned a lot about containment and epidemiology from the unfortunate experiences years ago with SARS and some other even more respiratory outbreaks that have occurred in the East. Um, That being said, you know, every time you see a commercial or you watch something, people in China, you know, they're walking around wearing masks. I see that here a lot, actually. A lot of Asian people do wear masks. Yes, um, and I think that that may just be based on that that notion. Right. Um, That being said, um, we wish that people would take it more seriously here in the United States. And unfortunately, a lot of our patients are reticent to don a mask when, in fact, it right. would probably benefit most. Because it gives you that feeling like you're really sick. Yeah, but... sort of the quarantine mentality. Nobody wants to feel that way. But right. unfortunately, like I said, right. it is a duty that you can do to your fellow human. Okay. Um, and you said the flu flu outbreak is slowing down a little bit. Yes. Um, we had a couple of guests on a few weeks ago, um, actually uh, over a month ago now, that they were recommending the flu shot. Um, your your um, opinion on that? You have to recommend the flu shot. We know that This year was quoted to be 62% effective, and that's actually fairly consistent with prior years. And there are lots of terms that the CDC is working on right now in in terms of making the public more aware of what vaccine efficacy means, effectiveness. These are terms that are scientific and that may not be understood well well by the layperson. So when we hear that the flu vaccine is 62% effective, we may think that's a failure. But in fact, that's a great success in my mind because folks... 62% of people will not get the flu or at least will not be so symptomatic to miss work or suffer, you know, downstream complications of it. Okay. All right. That's uh, very interesting. I'm going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Uh, Mark Milano. Okay. We'll talk to you in a few minutes. I'm Tom Wood of Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialists. Suffering from neck or back pain can truly disrupt your life. Every day I hear of the stories of people whose lives have been devastated by nerve pain, but who are afraid to see a neurosurgeon. They're scared of surgery. But at Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialists, we make getting back to the life you want possible using a variety of minimally invasive treatments. 
Our group of specialists are among the best trained doctors in the state, the leaders in stroke and minimally invasive spine and brain tumor procedures, and we view surgery as the last option. Don't be afraid to end your pain. Trust Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialists. We have eight offices throughout New Jersey and are affiliated with most healthcare systems. Call 973-285-7800 or visit us at ansdocs.com. That's ansdocs.com. Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialists. We've truly got your back. Hi, and welcome back to Answers Live. I'm your host, Tom Wood. I'm here today with Dr. Mark Milano, uh, Director of Emergency Services at Somerset Medical Center and part of a large group that covers most of the ERs in the state, practically, Emergency Medical Associates. We're discussing your ER visit. Um, a lot of great information. Um, we're going to start um, right back with uh, Dr. Milano and a question. Um, breaking this down now, what are the most common health issues you're facing we discussed? But let's go through some of the main ones. Let's start with cardiac arrest and heart attack um, and give us some information between men and women, signs and symptoms. Uh, when do you know? How do you correlate that between if I'm having a stroke or a heart attack? That kind of thing. Again, fabulous question because I think there is a mass misunderstanding about heart attack, stroke, heart failure, and cardiac arrest. Many people tend to think those all sort of lump into the same problem. They are actually very distinct issues. A heart attack is a condition in which there is a blocked blood vessel, which would normally supply blood to your heart itself, also known as a coronary artery. These over time can become progressively narrowed by plaque or atherosclerosis, eventually to the point where they are completely blocked and no blood can get to the heart. That's a heart attack. Cardiac arrest is actually when your heart functionally stops beating and you collapse, you're no longer conscious. And that's the point at which, you know, you've seen so many times on television when someone is receiving CPR or getting shocked by a defibrillator. So cardiac arrest, heart attack, two very distinct entities. Heart failure is yet a third area, which you still have a beating heart and you haven't had a blockage to a blood vessel, but in fact, the heart is beating so poorly that it's not effectively circulating blood to the rest of your body and you'll have symptoms of severe fatigue, shortness of breath, swelling. Um, and a stroke is a completely separate entity on which you are quite the expert. And that would include a blocked blood vessel or a rupture of a blood vessel to an essential area of the brain. So it doesn't involve the heart necessarily. The greatest relationship between all those conditions is that they all have similar risk factors. Advanced age, smoking is a number one cause. Um, high cholesterol, untreated high blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, that's very interesting. Actually, just talking about that, when you really split it down to the three types, that was interesting to me. Who I am medically oriented. Um, but that's good to know because you, you probably have different populations, or like I said, that, that would experience a heart attack. That would be probably your younger uh, people who have the atherosclerotic disease, opposed to your heart failure, who someone has you know, a long-term illness, or your elderly. So can you get a little bit into some of the signs that people would look for kind of in each three of those? Sure. Well, a heart attack we think of associated primarily with this clutching chest pain, squeezing or pressure-like pain in the chest that sometimes is associated with sweating, nausea, 
and shortness of breath. Um, the classic situation is this sort of 40-something or 50-something-year-old man who is doing some vigorous or strenuous activity and suddenly develops these symptoms. Very easy to diagnose that patient. Very commonly, they'll have characteristic findings on their EKG or electrocardiogram. And the treatment is relatively straightforward as well. It can conclude just simple things like aspirin and blood thinners all the way up to angioplasty where a specialized cardiologist inserts a catheter through your groin into your beating heart and down into one of your arteries to actually open it up with a balloon. And sometimes in some cases when that's not feasible, an emergency bypass surgery may be required. In men, it's a simpler entity. What we've learned in the last 15 or 20 years is that women will often present rather differently than men with the very same conditions. And heart attacks is one of those that is very scary to us because women will sometimes just have vague symptoms of fatigue, dizziness. I don't feel very well. I'm a little indigested, something along those lines. We have had to develop a much higher index of suspicion for women presenting with the same condition with different symptoms. So we also look at the risk factors for them as well. Age, family history, smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, all of these conditions that predispose one to a heart attack are things we now need to look at more closely in women than we did before. And we're doing a much better job, thankfully. Yeah. Um, this is a very interesting topic. I want to give our call-in number again in case you want to speak to Dr. Milano directly. It's 973-267-9687. Um, getting back to that topic with uh, men and women, and um, something I want to discuss to you about is, is the actual heart failure. Again, our listening audience is... Um, uh, my age now, I'm 50 and older, um, heart failure. What are those symptoms? A lot of times when I was actually in the clinical um, arena, I would see a lot of the elderly people, actually even now in the store sometimes, with this labored breathing, and, and they're becoming diaphoretic, they're sweaty. And I see that even outside, people walking around. I always wonder, oh, my God, I mean, what are those symptoms that people should say, okay, enough's enough, i got to get to the ER? Well, you know, congestive heart failure is a problem that is clearly on the rise from a, a systemic standpoint, and certainly statistically, we're seeing more and more of it as our population ages. One thing I always say is that we are succeeding in keep keeping people alive longer, but not necessarily healthier. And one of the complications that occurs due to longstanding illness, especially the multitude of illnesses that we see, primarily high blood pressure and diabetes, there is an increase in the incidence of congestive heart failure. And as you started to say, you do see people walking around that appear short of breath, sort of panting and breathing heavily with doing even basic daily activities like food shopping. Sometimes you even see people with an oxygen tank in tow right. because they require that supplemental oxygen in order to have their heart and body function normally due to how weak their heart muscle has become over time. The symptoms that we see with congestive heart failure, for instance, primarily shortness of breath with exertion. We see people who have a hard time lying flat because it's very interesting, but during the day when you're up and standing more, your blood tends under the force of gravity to pull more in your legs. It gives your heart less of a workload because some of that blood is sort of out of the equation, so to speak. Right. When you lie down at night, that blood volume can sort of redistribute throughout your body and add a lot more functional workload to your heart. And in fact, people who have congestive heart failure will often complain of a symptom we call P 
PND or paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea and orthopnea, which relate to that redistribution of blood supply and giving the heart that much more of a workload to deal with. So I'm having a hard time lying flat. I have trouble breathing when I lie down to sleep at night. That's a symptom of congestive heart failure. Trouble breathing in many forms. Swelling is another cardinal symptom or sign of congestive heart failure. Folks will often say, my legs have been swelling up, my feet are swollen, my shoes don't fit me anymore, my socks are making these terrible indentations in my legs. That's another symptom of congestive heart failure. General weakness, chest pain. There are many, many symptoms, but the large scale symptoms, I would say, are shortness of breath and trouble work, trouble with daily activities. It's very, very interesting, actually. It's, it's good to know with that going to sleep because you'll probably even see more ER visits later in the evening when people come in. Um, touch base real quick on another one of my um, strong subjects um, I get on my soapbox is stroke. Um, stroke is, is definitely occurring more and more. Um, I'm big on educating the public to the acronym FAST. Um, what, what would you like to let everyone know about stroke, some of those symptoms that they should really, really go to the ER and, and not question, am I having a stroke? When should they really go get checked out? Well, I think with stroke, the, uh, the answer is immediacy. The sooner we get you into treatment, the better outcome you're going to have. That has been well documented in the literature, which I know that you are an expert on. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, things like a facial droop, trouble speaking, numbness in an extremity, weakness in an extremity, a sudden severe headache. These are all possible symptoms of stroke. There are other conditions which can mimic stroke. Migraines, for instance, or seizures, they certainly have some overlapping symptoms. However, I think using your common sense and listening to that voice that we alluded to before is really the key. And in fact, dialing 911 and initiating that chain of survival really is the most critical thing one can do if you're even thinking that you have a stroke. Simple things, even like a sudden loss of vision can also be a symptom of stroke. And in fact, that would be another reason that you would want to call 911 immediately. Right. That's very, very good advice. And again, um, that is a passion of mine. So for all the listeners uh, out there, don't hesitate. If you think you're having a stroke, um, please go get uh, medical help. Um, If anything, you're going to get a good physical and checked out and find out everything is okay. But you don't want to wait and find out that you were having a stroke and you could have uh, prevented it. The treatment for stroke now is unbelievably um, accelerated and and people are surviving from strokes and doing very well. Um, As you know, I've had a, a, a talk on stroke, so we won't go into that, but we are going to have some future talks delving more into that. Um, Back to the ER and the experience. Um, Now that spring is coming, um, let's touch base on what you're going to see start piling into the ER. We know people are starting to get up, get out. Kids are playing sports. Um, I have a few specifics, but let's start and see what what you're going to start seeing in the ER and what what you do about it and what should we do to prevent it. Well, this is the season which kids have been pent up for months and months and months, we've had a particularly cold winter, so everybody's got that spring fever, even though it hasn't seemed to have sprung yet, and I think we're going to get a little bit of snow tomorrow, but right. once we really do enter the season, we start to see bicycle injuries. Hmm. These kids just get out there like little maniacs, and they just want to scream around the neighborhood, and they may not be as cautious and conscious of the perils that await them. 
I would like to say a little per- public service announcements on wearing your helmets, kids, Very because that so. is definitely something that will prevent you from getting severe or even life-threatening injuries when you're riding your bike. But lots of things that can happen as a result of a bicycle accident, for instance, anything from a minor cut or scrape to a broken bone. So we start to see the bumps, bruises, strains, and sprains that really come along with this time of year. And then some of the spring sports Typically a little bit lower impact, however, I think that lacrosse is getting into full swing right now, and that is the second most commonly head-injured sport, in fact. So concussion becomes a big issue with respect to these more contact sports, and lacrosse certainly being one of them, recently having treated a couple of guys who were out practicing very vigorously and sustaining head trauma. Nothing serious, thankfully, but those are the kind of things that we see more and more commonly in the spring months. Okay. And uh, last week we actually had our show on concussion, so our listeners got a, a pretty good idea of what to look for, so on and so forth. But again, with the sports starting, uh, to take take care of yourself. Um, also, I'm sure a lot of back injuries being part of Atlantic, we treat a lot of backs. Um, what should patients, when should patients go to the ER with their back pain? We've had a couple shows on that, but what do you see usually just from strenuous exercise or lifting, moving stuff in the yard? You start to see a lot of the back uh, issues. That's the story I most commonly hear helping a friend with moving furniture or, you know, doing something strenuous, vigorous. Um, there are sometimes people will just wake up with back pain. They, they slept poorly. Um, sometimes back pain, as we know, can be another feature of a stressful lifestyle in general. Um, posture, the way you sit, the way you drive, things that sort of just put unnecessary but long-term wear and tear on your spinal column. So back pain is a very common symptom, in fact, that we treat in the emergency department. And there are some things that we worry more about than others in terms of the characteristics of the pain or the other associated symptoms, weakness in an extremity, difficulty with controlling the bowel or the bladder. Those are some of the warning signs with back pain that get us very concerned. And certainly I'm sure the docs that you work with get very concerned as well about emergent conditions concerning the health of the spinal cord. Okay, absolutely. Um, We're actually running out of time. We have a couple minutes left. I just want to touch real quick, if we can possibly, um, with the uh, re-election of um, President Obama and the Obamacare. We hear a lot about health and health changes. Can you sum up in about a minute, which isn't much time, what do we kind of see changing where you are? Well, the general focus, as I understand about the PPACA, is that it is designed to provide universal access to health care. Not necessarily universal health care, but universal access to health care by bringing more and more people into the system that may have been excluded before, those who are economically disadvantaged, um, the children of, you know, the the wider span now during which children residing at home are able to be covered under their parents, Um, a couple of other instances in which we're trying to allow other people to have more access to health care. The unfortunate thing is, is that these people need primary care, and we have a sore lack of primary care physicians in the United States. Lots of people graduating medical school today are looking to specialize. They feel that the money or the lifestyle is more desirable as compared to being a primary care physician. How that impacts us in the emergency department is lots of people being brought into the system with more access to care, but no doctors to care for them. So now they have this newly minted insurance card, and it isn't as valid as it used to be. So unfortunately, their only sort of last resort is coming to the emergency department. So we're going to expect a huge volume surge 
in the emergency department as a result of the change that have been instituted as a result of this CARE Act. Okay. Thank you very much. We're actually going to do a show on that in the, in the next couple months to get more into that. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening today. My guest today was Dr. Dr. Mark Milano from Somerset Medical Center, part of EMA. And again, uh, Answers Live is brought to you every Sunday at 930 from Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialist. Thank you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday to all the, those who uh, practice that. And I will see you next Sunday. Join us again next week for Answers Live, your community medical connection making a partnership of good health. The preceding program was paid for by Atlantic Neurosurgical Specialists. The views and opinions expressed on Answers Live are not necessarily those of the staff and management of the station. Management has not investigated the claims made during this program. Superstorm Sandy united New Jersey like nothing else in recent memory. Everyone has come together to bring New Jersey back stronger than ever. The business community is coming together as well. The New Jersey Chamber of Commerce has brought together a vast majority of New Jersey's local and regional chambers of commerce into a unified coalition we call Chambers United. And we're going to do everything we can to support the state's recovery efforts, promote economic growth, and create jobs. Chambers United believes it's critical that we tell the world the Jersey Shore and other areas of the state hit by Hurricane Sandy are already rebuilding and are open for business. We further urge every consumer and every company in the Garden State, whether it's a large project or your day-to-day purchases, consider buying from a New Jersey business first. In the coming months, Chambers United will propose new ways our state can enhance its competitiveness. This is Ray Zardetto for the New Jersey Chamber of Commerce, urging you to add your voice to the over 150,000 businesses already in our coalition. For more information, call the New Jersey Chamber of Commerce at 609-989-7888 or visit our website at njchamber.com. This message sponsored by the New Jersey Chamber of Commerce, the New Jersey Broadcasters Association, and this station. Here are the WMTR contest rules. Employees and the immediate family members and members of households of employees of WMTR and its advertisers and the respective parent affiliate companies are not eligible to participate in our contest. Only one winner per household will be accepted in our contest for purposes of this contest. Household shall mean all persons residing at or claiming as their principal residence any single occupancy dwelling or unit in a multiple occupancy dwelling. No person is eligible to participate in our contest who has won any prize from WMTR with a value of $25 or greater within the 30-day period to the start date of the next contest. Each winner in our contest must claim his or her prize in person the offices of WMTR within 30 days of the end of the contest. Prizes not claimed within such 30-day period will be forfeited. Each winner of our contest must provide a social security number for tax reporting purposes and will be responsible for the payment of any federal, state, or local taxes in conjunction with the award or use of a prize. Each contest winner must sign an agreement releasing WMTR on the contest sponsors from liability in connection with the operation of the contest and the award and use of the prize and giving WMTR